Well, today's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 45. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were very heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, uh, it's Valentine's Day. And did you know that the greatest Valentine of all was when God sent his only begotten son? I'm not going to do that. Uh, but this sermon, I'm, I'm, I promise you, no. It's not just Valentine's Day, folks. Even bigger deal uh, that you may have missed. It's Transfiguration Sunday. Boom. Historically, a feast day in the church calendar. Though, uh, and, and if you've read the Bible, at all or read through the New Testament and the Gospels. You're familiar at least somewhat with this story. Uh, but its significance remains, I think, for many of us somewhat obscure and mysterious. Why, in the middle of the Gospel, in, in Matthew and in Mark and here in Luke, why in the middle, all of a sudden, you know, Jesus is going around. He's in Galilee. He's in Capernaum. Uh, uh, he's moving around. He's teaching and he's healing. And then he goes up on this mountain, and this incredibly strange thing happens to him. And it's not just an odd intrusion into the narrative, though. I think as we look at it this morning, we're going to see something clear emerge. That, that, that the transfiguration story, it's crucial in the Gospels to answering the most important question of all. A question, really, I think that the Gospels, in, in one way or another, are, are, are each trying to explain and wrestle with over the course of, of, of their entirety is this, is this question. Who is Jesus? Who is he? 
Now, just before this, in Luke, and Luke tells us, he says, eight days earlier, so this is a signal, it's connected to the event that came before. Uh, eight days before, Jesus had asked his disciples, well, who, who, do, who do the people, what are the people saying about me? Who do they say that I am? And then he asked them, you know, that point blank question, well, who do you say that I am? And that's when Peter gives his, his famous uh, confession, you know, beautiful in the King James language, you know, thou art the Christ. And, you know, but he's saying, you're, you're the Messiah. You're the king. And, uh, you know, Jesus affirms him in that answer. You know, flesh and blood have not revealed this, this to you. So Peter has struck on something crucial at that moment. Then, lest we forget, he's rebuked immediately after that. And so there's something about it. Peter has the, the right answer, but not the right understanding. The, 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 the correct language without realizing the exact meaning. And, and, but how could he have at that point? And so to understand the, the content, really the full content of his confession, Peter needed, James and John needed, we need the transfiguration. And so we're going to look at three things this morning. Uh, what does the transfiguration teach us about who Jesus really is? How should we respond to the transfiguration? And then lastly, where does the transfiguration lead us? All right, so first, what the transfiguration teaches us about who Jesus really is. So Peter had said correctly, Jesus is the Messiah. But there's no way he could have understood that the full implications of what he was saying with that confession when he made it. Calling Jesus the Messiah, you know, in the context of, of uh, Second Temple Judaism, it, it, it meant many things, but, but it, it meant this, that, that he was saying that Jesus was Israel's true and rightful king. And when Peter said that, when anyone else would say that about anyone else, you know, what they were thinking of was a, a very much a, a this-worldly king who would establish a this-worldly kingdom. But what the transfiguration shows is that Peter's confession, it meant much more than he could have imagined. That, that the meaning, the valence of those words could not be contained in the existing kind of expectations or categories. Now, Peter believed that Jesus was, was an earthly Messiah, definitely sent by God. But what he saw on that mountain showed him that, that the Messiah was so much more than even the highest hopes or, or greatest expectations could, could, could have begun to hint at. That he wasn't just looking at a you know, divinely ordained uh, earthly king, but, but, but actually a heavenly king. Just look at what happens. Jesus goes with, with Peter, James, and John. He goes up on a mountain to pray. And it says that while he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. And if we were to just woodenly translate the Greek there, it says that the, he had the appearance or took on the appearance of another face. His face changed. Now, unfortunately, uh, I've been a, um, a Minnesota Timberwolves fan as long as I can remember. I share that with many people in the congregation. I'm thinking of Mikey Busalis and Matt Anderson specifically. Matt even has written a very wonderful change.org petition to contract the Minnesota Timberwolves franchise, which has not gotten the, garnered the attention that it so rightly deserves. Um, but they are, to my mind, and I think this is objectively true, they are the worst team in the history of professional sports. And they have brought my life almost no joy and almost endless frustration and pain. 
Yet, even in the midst of that, there have been some very bright spots and bright moments and even bright players. And one of them uh, was one of those bright moments and bright kind of seasons or times, seasons of hope, false hope it turned out, was when the team uh, drafted Ricky Rubio and then he came and played for the team. And at the time, he was this wunderkind, a Spanish point guard, um, and he came in the early aughts. He's back now, and it's not going as well as one would have hoped. But, but Ricky then was filled with so much joy for the game and so much life, and, and he was a wizard with the ball and just this fierce competitor. He, he exuded joy when he played the game. There was so much joy in his game. And there's this classic moment um, back early on in Ricky's career, and, and he's mic'd up during a game. And so, you know, they'll do that if you watch sports at all. They'll mic up players and then go back and play kind of some of what they're saying during the course of the game. And so Ricky was mic'd up, and one of his teammates, a, a Russian guard named Alexei Shved, was having a rough game. Now, truth be told, this could basically have been said about any game of Alexei Shved's not entirely storied uh, career. But, but, but anyways, you know, Ricky is coming out of a timeout, and he sees that Alexi is, fl- is frustrated with the way he's been playing, and, and, and his countenance ha- had fallen. And so Ricky just looks at Alexi, and with all of this earnestness on his face, says this to him in this kind of broken, a little bit broken English, but this wonderful Spanish accent, uh, accent and he says, Alexi, change that face. Be happy. And if you Google it, you can, you can find it. Someone can probably drop it in, in the comments right now. But I love that quote because it captured something about Ricky and his understanding of what, what it means to play with joy. Alexi, change that face. Because you can tell a lot about someone by looking at their face. And so right here in this passage, in the transfiguration, Jesus' face changes. And so what does that mean? And there's so much detail. This, this story is really rich in detail and, and, and almost like these endless amounts of allusions to the entire biblical story, particularly the Old Testament. And so, so many of these details can be lost on us. Or we can just gloss over them. But I want us to just look at them a little bit closer. Because Luke, it doesn't want us to miss what he's saying here. So we have Jesus' face changing. We have his clothes become, you know, dazzling white. We have Moses and Elijah showing up for a conversation. We have a cloud. We have a voice from heaven. What's going on here? All of these details, they're adding up to something, to something shocking. Luke is leading us to a very shocking place. Now, when Moses, who makes an appearance here, when in, in the book of Exodus, he went up on Mount Sinai, he asked God, well, I want to I see you. And God said, I won't show you my face. I'll show you my back. And so Moses goes and he hides in in the rock and God passes by and he sees God's back. And it says that when Moses descended the mountain, his face was glowing and it was so bright that they had to cover it with a veil. And then in Exodus, it talks about a cloud, a pillar of cloud leading the Israelites in the wilderness. And it talks about the smoke covering the top of Mount Sinai. And, and, and a cloud also speaks to this, this glory cloud. It's called God's Shekinah glory that filled the tabernacle in the wilderness so that it, it was like too smoky so Moses couldn't even enter it. This cloud is a manifestation of God's presence. And there's a voice from heaven, a voice that we heard before in Luke's gospel at Jesus' baptism, a voice that speaks words, though, that are, are just saturated in Scripture. Of Psalm 2, where it talks about God's, God's king as my son, a royal psalm. And the words of Isaiah 42 that are about the servant of the Lord, who was God's chosen one, 
who would suffer to bring God's people back from exile. And then there are those words of listen to him, which are the words of Deuteronomy 18, where God promises the Israelites another prophet like Moses. If only they will listen to him. And then there's Moses and Elijah, the lawgiver, the great leader of of God's people and their liberation and the greatest prophet in Israel's history. And, And both of these men had encountered God on a mountain before. You know, Moses on top of Mount Sinai and and Elijah on Mount Horeb when he heard uh, the still small voice. And so both of them had stood in God's presence and lived to tell, tell about it. And so this story, as we can see, it's so rich with detail and thick with biblical allusions, and all of them are pointing to the fact that what happens on the Mount of Transfiguration is is what technically gets called, and here is a fancy word that we we can learn, it's, it's, it's a theophany, which is just this word that means an appearance of God. A theophany is what happens when God shows up in a very personal and powerful way in Scripture. And these occur at crucial moments in the Bible. And Luke's message, though, the shocking conclusion that he's leading us to, isn't that Jesus himself is experiencing a a, a theophany, an appearance of God, but that he himself is a theophany. He is the thing. You know, Moses saw God's back and his face shone. And it's like Luke is telling us that, well, Moses was the moon, you know, just reflecting the light. But Jesus is the sun. He's the source. He's radiating it. And Moses and Elijah had both, both been enveloped by God's presence. Both of them had encountered God in their own way. They, they, they had stood in the eye of the storm. And Luke is pointing to the fact that Jesus is the storm. And Moses and Elijah had both heard God. Moses, you know, when he was being given the law and Elijah with the still small voice, but here is a heavenly voice affirming that Jesus is one like, unlike any other before or since. You know, and Peter, he says, well, this is good. This is great. I can't believe what I'm seeing. Let's build the three tents. And when, when Peter said that, it was in response to that statement that the cloud then appears. And when the cloud goes away, Jesus stands alone. And so what this says is is not that Jesus doesn't belong with them, but that actually Moses and Elijah are not on par with Jesus. He stands alone. And so what the transfiguration means then is that when we confess like Peter that Jesus is Messiah, that he's king, that that he's Lord, what we're actually saying, you know, isn't just that Jesus, Jesus is God's chosen king, but much more that incredibly that he is God coming as king. In person. That Jesus is a theophany. He is an appearance of God in our midst. And so when we want to know what God is like, when we want to know what the law, which, which Moses brings, means, or when we not want to know what the prophets were talking about, justice and repentance and holiness, well, then we need to look to Jesus. So who is Jesus, right? This is the question that hangs over uh, the entirety of the New Testament and the Gospels. And the, the, the shocking answer that comes and, and that the church comes to realize in its reading of Scripture is that he is God in the flesh. He is, as the other authors of the New Testament say, you know, the visible manifestation of the invisible God. He is the exact representation 
of God's very own being. He is what Eugene Peterson says in his message translation of John chapter 1. You know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and, 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 and the Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. That's what's happening. That's who Jesus is. And, you know, what, is, what does that mean for us? I mean, uh, I think the implications of such statements are inexhaustible, but, but it means something for this, that, that if we want to deal with Jesus as he really is, we have to deal with him in light of this incredibly audacious claim that's being made about him. That Jesus is, of course, not less than a great teacher, but, but he's so much more. You know, he, he's not just a teacher of divine wisdom, but, but he is, is the source of all wisdom and intelligence that stands behind the universe. He's not less than a powerful prophet like Elijah, but he is the source and measure of of the true justice and true holiness that the prophet spoke about. And he's not less than a king, but he's so much more. He's he's the king of creation. That wonderful hymn, right? Hail to the Lord, the Almighty, the king of creation. After the Enlightenment, there, there were... And still continue to be certain movements within Christianity to kind of make it more palatable to its, its cultured despisers or, or those who perceive it as less than intellectually sophisticated. And so one common move has been stripping Christianity to its supposed essence, which means, um, you know, doing something different with a story like the, the Transfiguration and leaving it in many ways on the cutting room floor. But I don't want to do that because the Transfiguration, it, it refuses to let us kind of water down our claims about Jesus and, and, and forces us to deal with him as he really is in all of his wonder and, and mystery and glory and majesty and splendor. You know, the transfiguration shows us, uh, to, to not be too glib about it, but it shows us that Jesus, he is all that and then some. So the question then becomes, okay, knowing that, knowing some of the implications, what, what, how should we respond? What, what, what's the proper response that we see in the text to the transfiguration itself? What then shall we do? How can this become for us not just some kind of truth that we know in our heads, an intellectual truth like Peter's first confession? How can it become for us like Peter in this passage in James and John? You know, this is not an intellectual truth. This is a living truth, an existential truth. And I really think the key to answering that question is seen in our passage in verse 32 where it says this, Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. So they saw Jesus' glory, Luke is telling us, when they became fully awake. That's, that's, that's the key phrase right there. And that word glory in, in Hebrew, uh, and, you know, it means uh, weighty or heavy in certain contexts. It, it's meaning that, that something becomes real, becomes tangible, becomes manifest. And so how should we respond to the transfiguration? By waking up to who Jesus really is. And, and, and so what we see here is that the transfiguration, it, it ought to be a kind of wake-up call for us. Now, wake-up calls are, are, are those rare, and, and they're often these kind of terrifying moments in our life when, when, we, when we have a, a wake-up call. Something big happens. Something kind of shatters how we've been just sort of sleepwalking through life. And we can all think of maybe examples in our own life where we've gotten a wake-up call. You get a health scare, right? A heart attack, a stroke, 
a panic attack, something like that. That's a wake-up call. A kind of a near miss. Oh my gosh, I almost got in an accident. This horrible thing almost happened. That can be a wake-up call. People who have struggled with addiction, with abuse of drugs or alcohol, they can kind of hit up a point in their addiction where, where there's a, a wake-up call. They call it hitting rock bottom sometimes, but, but, but it's, it's, it's a wake-up call going, I can't just keep on living like I'm living. A conversation, a conflict, a strain in a relationship with a spouse or a loved one, it can kind of be a wake-up call, an inflection point. Breaking down, burning out, you wake up to the fact that you just cannot keep on living how you're living and doing what you're doing. And I think this past year, there's been all sorts of wake-up calls all around. Pandemic filled with wake-up calls. Uh, George Floyd and its aftermath filled with wake-up calls. Uh, 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 the, the election and January 6th, wake-up call after wake-up call at a personal and a national level. These are precious moments saying something's got to change. And the transfiguration right there in the middle of the gospel, it's a wake-up call that our relationship to Jesus is something that, that we can't put off any longer. It's of ultimate concern, and it's of ultimate significance. And so how do we wake up? Right, that's the question. If it's a wake-up call, how do we wake up? And I think we see th three things in this passage about how waking up happens. And the first is with prayer. That's what Jesus was doing when his, his face was changed, when he was transfigured. And we read about this is nice, you know, kind of God's providence, how this works. Of course, we're always talking about prayer in church. But just this past week in life groups, as we're reading through John Perkins' One Blood, right, what does he talk about? Prayer is the, the source for the work of racial justice and reconciliation. That's what we got. That's the powerhouse. That is the kind of nuclear reactor that's going to give us the, 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 the power that we need to engage in this area and in this work. And, and so where there's prayer, where there's power, and there's waking up to our powerlessness, right? Waking up to our insignificance and our, and our neediness. And yet the fact that the God of the universe is listening to us, it's this incredible wake-up call. And the second way we wake up, as we see in this passage, is through worship. I, I really, I think, you know, Peter, he kind of awkwardly offers to build these three tents. And I think that's his way in that moment of trying to engage in an act of worship. What happens when we truly worship is that those intellectual truths become existential truths. That we know in our heads, you know, it becomes real in our hearts. And it's not just our intellects that are moved in worship. And we love, if we're an intellectual type person, if that is what we, you know, kind of get into, um, we also need our affections moved as well. And so worship is directing our love towards its proper object. And in worship, we wake up to reality. And um, we... It, read in life groups a couple of years ago this book a uh, wonderful book called the liturgy of the Ord ordinary by tish warren harrison and, and i think that book gets a lot of what i'm about to say here but in worship we're waking up to reality that we're not just when we're together in church um and for some of you it's remember that type of a thing uh, but but when we get back it's not just that we're sitting around other people but that we are surrounded by people whom the new testament you know paul when he's writing his letters addresses the people in these churches as saints holy people. We're around people created in God's image and likeness. And we aren't just singing songs in this room. Some of us in varying degrees of, of, of you know, 
onness and on the rhythm and on the key and everything like that, but that we are a part of this great heavenly choir that includes the angels. And we're not just reading, you know, stories from an, an old book, but we're hearing the very words of God. And we're not just mumbling some prayers that we've maybe memorized, but, but we are addressing our creator. And we're not just eating a little bit of bread and drinking a little bit of juice or, or wine, but, but that God's, uh, Jesus' very body and blood are present to us in some way. And we aren't merely, you know, just this little church on an insignificant corner in the midst of a giant, you know, continental landmass, but that we are an outpost of God's kingdom mission, a, a, a forward operating base in his battle against all that is evil and destructive and dehumanizing. And so when we worship, we, we wake up to reality as it really is because of Jesus. And we see his glory radiating all around us, especially in the mundane. And finally, we wake up to Jesus by doing what the voice from heaven says in verse 35. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Wonderful instructions. It's as simple and as difficult as that. So if we want to wake up to God, we need to listen to Jesus. We need to do what he says. There's no more delays, no more excuses, no equivocating. Right, this is our wake-up call. And now the last point, and very briefly I want to touch on this, and, and it's going to dovetail with kind of what's lying ahead uh, for us in the church year, and, and that's where does the transfiguration lead us? So we get this wake-up call. You know, we see who Jesus really is, and we think, all right, that's going to lead us to the mountaintop. Spiritual ecstasy. Endless bliss, nirvana, enlightenment, whatever you want to call it. And so while waking up to Jesus, it might start there. It will never, as we see, leave us there. Because even on the mountaintop, even when Jesus is on the mountaintop and he's being transfigured, and the most amazing thing is happening, he's talking about the valley below. In fact, it's only in Luke that we get insight into what this conversation was that Jesus was having with Moses and Elijah. You would want to know what he's talking about if you could be there. And, and, and Matthew and Mark, they leave it a mystery. But Luke tells us, he gives us this tantalizing little hint about what Jesus was talking about with these two gigantic figures. And it says, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who'd appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in, at Jerusalem. And that Greek word departure, it's one that you don't even need to take one day of New Testament Greek to know what it means. It's the Greek word there is, it says exodus. They were talking about his exodus, his going away. That's a, that's a very pregnant word. What, what, what's happening? His exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And the exodus was a journey to freedom for sure. But it was a journey that went through the wilderness and it was a journey that included a lot of pain. And in fact, it included the death of the firstborn in Egypt. And so Jesus' glory, it's, it's revealed on the mountain of transfiguration. But even that conversation is showing us that it's going to be even more fully revealed on another mountain called Golgotha, when, when, when the light of the world would go out and, 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 and the darkness that would descend upon Jesus' face that here is radiating God's glory, when, when the darkness descends upon Jesus' face, the darkness of death, it's going to extend over the entire land. And so the glory of the transfiguration leads Jesus and those who would follow him directly into the pain, sin, suffering, and human misery we see in the story that is the, the, the end point of our passage today. 
of the man whose son has a demon that seizes him and shatters him and throws him to the ground. And that's the reality of the world that Jesus descends into. And that's where we go who follow him as well. And, and, and the language about what this, this power does to this boy, this dark power, it's, it's violent, shatters him, throws him to the ground. It's, it's like he's just being beaten down by this thing. And how many of us can, can relate? We know people have been just thrown to the ground, shattered, broken, almost by life. We've been maybe thrown down to the ground and held there and kicked by life. And so what is it that, that the people, what is it that we need when we're in those places? We need someone who's willing to get down on our level and help us stand on our own two feet and to do something about whatever those forces are, those powers and principalities are that seize us, that harm us, that enslave us, that oppress us. And so Jesus' glory leads him to the cross to deal with all this ugliness, and we follow him there whenever we enter into the ugliness and the brokenness and the shatteredness of this world. Because we believe that in those places, especially where Jesus is at work, we will see his glory. We will see his beauty. We will see his face. And we will be fully alive and fully awake. And Jesus tells his disciples at the end of the passage where he's headed. And he prefaces it with this. He says, let these words sink into your ears. In other words, listen to me. And he says he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be handed over. And at this point, they couldn't listen to him. They couldn't hear what he was saying. Now, sisters and brothers, this, this Wednesday coming up, it's Ash Wednesday. And it's the beginning of the season of the church year when we focus on uh, discipleship and walking uh, with Jesus all the way to Jerusalem and the events of Holy Week. And so I invite you to join me on this journey. I invite you to, to see uh, the beautiful face of Jesus, even in the ugliness and the brokenness of this world that he came to save. And I think it's, it's only with that kind of understanding and that kind of commitment uh, that we're going to be pr protected and prevented from just burning out or from giving up or, or becoming cynical or from trying to sort of protect ourselves by being the kind of people who give up hope or who just give up on caring. So let's wake up. Let's pray, let's worship, let's listen, let's get to work, and let's turn our eyes upon Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Please pray with me.